Father, we pray that you might guide us today as we look to your word, that you might remind us that you've sent us on a mission for your name's sake, that you might guide us to, to look, to understand, and to grow in a greater knowledge of Jesus and Jesus' mission. Father, I pray particularly today that as we look to your word, what's taking place 2,000 years ago, we might look into history, how others have lived faithfully, that we might be encouraged to do so today. For it's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen and amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Ed Stetzer. I am the, currently the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, where I used to work with your pastor, Josh Laxton. And, um, and oftentimes when you come to the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, what you'd see and find, if you came in late, Josh and I would have music playing loudly sometimes. And that music playing loudly often was the musical Hamilton. And so Josh, who's far more creative than me, Josh is, you know, he's got this creative series that you're doing right now. Um, I, I lack creativity at a high level. So I'm here. I don't know if I'm going to be as creative or as, as Josh is going to be. But I, but I do think we can actually make some connections here. When Josh originally came, you know, said, well, I'm going to do this series. You're coming in, in June. I'm going to do this series uh, kind of, you know, tied around this, uh, you know, kind of some historical references to Hamilton. I was a little skeptical of that. But, but, uh, but then he said that I would do the week where I could talk about Eliza Hamilton. Let me tell you a little bit why I was like, okay, then let's do that. Because when everyone was like all the rage of Hamilton a few years ago, um, I actually wrote an article for Christianity Today about an often maybe unseen part of the story is the deep faith of Eliza Hamilton. And we're going to look at that today. So we're going to look at three time periods today. And we're going to start with a time period 2,000 years ago. I'm going to ask you to take out your Bible, and I'm going to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. John chapter 20, verse 19. That's our text for today. And that's going to take us back 2,000 years ago to the disciples in an upper room. And then we're going to look at a time period that's 200 years ago, and we're going to look at some historic examples from the life of Eliza Hamilton tying into this kind of creative series you're doing this summer. And then I'm going to go back to, well, then I'm going to go today, and I want to talk about you and how this applies to you as well. Now, for those of you just joining us, the, one of the reasons that the message is closer at the front of the service is so that the live stream can actually join us earlier. I recognize that some of you have a strategy. You like to come in during the music, and that strategy has failed you today because the message has now started, and, but we're glad that you're here. And always, let's encourage you to get here and be a part of the worship earlier that's here, but we do that because the music's copyrighted, and so we can't necessarily uh, broadcast that. And so now we jump into the message, and then after the message, we'll have a bit of our worship that we might do before the message after the message. I'm going to talk about that as well. So remember that we're going to look back 2,000 years ago to the teachings of the Bible. We're going to look at a couple of historic examples 200 years ago, and ultimately we're going to see how that's applied in our lives today. So hopefully by now, you've opened your Bibles to John chapter 20, beginning at verse 19, and I'm going to read John chapter 20, uh, verse 19 through 21. Here we go. It's going to be on the screen as well. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. And here's the key sentence we're going to look at today. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So here we are, 2,000 years ago, the disciples were in a locked room with the doors locked in fear, and Jesus was about to send them on a mission. 
And so 2,000 years later, we're going to hear the words of Jesus and acknowledge that we are sent on mission by Jesus into the world. So my task today is to teach through this passage to encourage you to join Jesus on mission. But we also have to acknowledge that we're in a very complicated time. It's a cultural convulsion. It's a time of turbulence and tumult. There's a lot of division in our culture. There's a lot of people upset at one another. The culture in many ways is moving away from uh, traditional Judeo-Christian ideas and and in doing so pushing uh, different directions. Christians are unsure how to respond and they feel the cultural convulsion, the tumult and the turbulence, the uncertainty of the future. That we're not the first Christians who's lived, Christians who've lived in a time and a moment like this, but it's a unique time for us of turbulence and tumult. It's a complicated time. It's a challenging time. And I think there's no better time to look back to the Gospels to see what Jesus called his people to do in such times in the past. Now, let me remind you, in the midst of that, we live in this time, but the moment we're in does not pause the mission we are on. We're sent on mission here. Just like 2,000 years ago, they were sent on mission. We're sent on mission here 2,000 years later. So to understand this, I'm going to walk through the text in four parts, four points. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down. I encourage you to do that. You'll help, it'll help you to remember them. But four things we'll go through. We'll go through this passage, look at what was taking place 2,000 years ago. We'll use some illustrations from 200 years ago, and then we'll talk about today. Number one on our outline, fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. Now, the person writing this, his name is John. He's, uh, this is the, called the Gospel of John. John, the Gospel writer, is a detail-giving Gospel writer. John writes with a lot of detail about a shorter amount of time in Jesus' life compared to the other Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who kind of go the span of Jesus' life. John focuses a lot on one week, and he gives a lot of detail. He's a detail-giving Gospel writer. And so he wants us to know certain things. He communicates certain things about those details. He wants us to know certain things that flow from those details. That's what we're going to look at today is some of the details he wants us to know. So fear is the opposite of faith. John chapter 20 verse 19 begins that conversation. Let's take a look at it on your screen. It says in John chapter 20 beginning verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week. Now I want to take this little by little. So what day is it, right? So on the evening, it's, sun, it's nighttime, first day of the week, that's Sunday, but it says on the evening of that first day of the week. Now we're not working our way through the gospel of John. If we were, the week prior, we probably would have talked about uh, what was happening in John chapter 20. So if you look at John chapter 20, you actually find that, maybe you got your Bible open, you can actually look just a few verses ahead of that. And in John chapter 20, a few verses ahead of that, right at the beginning of John chapter 20 is actually the, uh, the empty tomb. So this is that day. So on the evening of that first day of the week, it's Easter Sunday night. Now, John wants us to see something, right? He says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, okay, so it's the disciples there, 2,000 years later, disciples are here, on that first day of the week, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now, I want you not to miss that, because the doors being locked is a significant thing. Now, mind you, it doesn't seem significant today, but John wants us to see it significant. Here's why. It doesn't seem significant today. Um, my guess is most of you lock your doors, right? So it's not an uncommon thing. Maybe you locked your car door when you came in this morning. You locked your door when you left this morning. I live in Chicago. I lock my doors, okay? 
So the reality is, with doors locked, but John's giving us a detail because he says why. With doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So the disciples, John wants us to see, the disciples are actually, in a sense, hiding away with the doors locked in fear. So John, the detail-giving gospel writer, wants us to know that the disciples are hiding away in fear. Now, why does that matter? Because it's on the evening of that day the first day of the week. Well, what is that day? The beginning of John chapter 20, it says there's the empty tomb. You come to the middle of John chapter 20, you actually see Mary Magdalene appear. And it says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. So Mary Magdalene has actually gone to the disciples and told them that Jesus is back from the dead. So don't miss this, right? So the disciples have heard about this, Jesus has talked about him being raised from the dead. And now Mary Magdalene says, he is risen from the dead. He is not here, he is risen. And so she tells the disciples, and John then wants us to see that the disciples are hiding behind closed doors in fear. You see, in fearful times, people respond sometimes in ways that are not helpful. They're certainly not filled with hope. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But fear is the opposite of faith, and maybe today, like people are afraid even today, right? There, there's fear is stoked and provoked in our culture, right? We're about to go into another election series, another election season, yay. I mean, you live in Florida, so you must get like ads, door-to-door, day-to-day political advertising. Now, now, I want you to know that, that so many of them, here's what, here's what politicians have learned. Fear motivates people. Here's what cable news channels have, uh, channels have learned. Here's what, here's what radio stations have learned. Fear motivates people. So all around us are people trying to generate fear. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have concern and speak up and speak out on certain issues. But what I want you to hear is, is that fear is not the Christian response. Over and over again, we hear people saying, angels showing up and saying, fear not. So Christians respond differently than the world, but in John 20, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were there with their doors locked. Fearful times produce sometimes unhelpful responses. On the other hand, sometimes it helps us to embrace our faith in fearful times. Remember that fear is the opposite of faith, you know? So, um, so how do we embrace our faith in fearful times? Well, we actually see that in the lives of different people. I told you um, when Josh called me and told me what series he was doing, and, and I was, I was, I'm, I'm so okay, Josh. Um, but then I got to do a, talk about Eliza, and so I can talk about Eliza because let me just tell you, in all of Hamilton, there's a lot of really terrible people. I want you not to miss that, right? So. A lot of people have kind of walked away from their faith or their family's faith. Maybe heard about Aaron Burr, sir. He's kind of a key recurring theme in the, in the musical. Well, that's, by the way, that's actually Jonathan Edwards, who's a famous preacher. That's Jonathan Edwards' grandson is Aaron Burr. He actually gives you a hint of that in the musical when, when he talks about my grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. But boy, he's kind of walked away from that. Alexander actually starts, kind of seems to have some sort of faith, and then seems to have walked away from that for a while. Certainly lived a life that didn't honor the Lord for a while. Maybe comes back at the end, but there's one person that you see hints of in the musical, but history tells you even more. Eliza Hamilton was a deeply committed Christian. 
She, she walked with the Lord. She had a deep faith from her childhood. Her faith would be tested often during her marriage and in the years after Alexander's untimely death. She and Alexander married in 1780. Alexander would die in a famous duel with Aaron Burr, sir, in 1804. She'd live another 50 years, a key moment in the musical. She lived another 50 years. She lived longer after Hamilton's death. She died at the age of 97. But in the three-year span following the turn of the 19th century, she buried her sister, her eldest son, her father, and then her husband. She was left as a single mother, lost financially so much, with whose youngest child was only two. She delivered eight children, was a foster mother to a little girl, and now a widow. You can imagine that would be a time of fear for her. We wouldn't be surprised to see her respond with fear, but Eliza's passion was deeply rooted in the Lord, and her passion for her children and her faith would lead her to incredible influence and to make a great difference. In 1806, just two years after Alexander's death in the duel, she was one of the founders of the first, we just heard about it, the first private orphanage in New York City, the New York Orphan Asylum Society. Now here's the deal, right? So in the midst of tumultuous and turbulent times, sometimes people respond in fear and they get caught up and driven in the wrong or different directions. We see that in our culture today. We see that among some Christians today. But sometimes Christians in times of fear actually stand up, actually stand out, actually stand up in the, stand in the gap and make much of Jesus. And in doing so, they actually live a faith-filled life in a fear-filled time. And I think that's what Eliza does. And 2,000 years ago, that's what they did. You see, they were actually behind closed doors in fear. But we know in just a minute, just to give you a little where this passage is going in John chapter 20, Jesus is about to appear to, appear to them and send them on mission. So we know they go from fear to trusting the Lord in faith and then to join him on mission. Because fear is not where God wants his people to dwell. 2 Timothy 1.7 puts it this way. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. A translation I have it memorized and said, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So in times of tumult and turbulence like we live in today, or maybe you're experiencing personally right now, fear is not our call. Fear not. Faith is the invitation to trust Jesus in the midst of those things. We look back 2,000 years ago, we're about to see the disciples do that. We look back 200 years ago, Eliza, an example of someone who trusted the Lord in difficult times, and it can point you to the truths of the scripture and to the example of Christians that have lived before us. That's number one. Fear is the opposite of faith. Number two, peace is the Christian response. Peace is the Christian response. So how do we respond in tumultuous and turbulent times? 2,000 years ago, they're behind closed doors with the doors locked in fear. Jesus appears to them and says something to them not once, but twice. Now remember, he's reminding them this moment is their moment to live on mission. Remember, the moment we're in does not pause the mission we're on. Whenever we live as followers of Jesus, we're sent on mission. So verse 19, the second part says this. Let's take a look on the screen. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. You can see the four words in the quote, peace be with you. Those are the words of Jesus. He says them not once, but twice. So let's say it together. Would you, those four words, just say it with me. Let's say it. Peace be with you. 
Let's do it again. He said it twice, we'll say it twice. Are you ready? Peace be with you. So they're in hiding, in closed doors, in fear. Jesus shows up. Now, he's been bodily resurrected. It's not that the idea of Jesus has lived on. It's not even that there's some sort of spiritual resurrection. His corpse has been resuscitated. He has been bodily resurrected. But this body now miraculously appears behind closed doors and says, peace be with you. Why? Because one of the things that marks the Christian is a life that is shaped by the peace of Christ. It's a life that actually is shaped by a different way of facing tumultuous and turbulent times. Maybe you've walked through a tumultuous and turbulent time. And if you've walked through and trusted the Lord in the midst of that, one of the things you may have said along the way is that the Lord has given you a peace that passes all understanding. You found his grace and his presence in the midst of difficulty, right? I bet there are Christians here who could give testimony to other Christians in a season of struggle to lean in and trust the Lord in the midst of difficulty. Now, I came to Christ in Central Florida in the Orlando area. I heard the gospel here for the first time. Lived here my my teenage years and a little longer than that. Went to Lake Howell High School, so afterwards I'm gonna go stand out there and greet people as you leave, and I expect all the Silverhawks from Lake Howell High School to come say hello to me. But, but so there you go, there's one right there. There's one right there, so. <laughs> so, you know, so for me, but I heard the gospel here, but early on, maybe it was my own fault of what I was looking for, but, but early on I became convinced, but Jesus changed my life, that's true. I've been forgiven of my sin, that's true, but somehow early on I got the idea that Christians weren't going to have any problems. They're just going to be happy all the time, and, and they're going to be joyful, and never going to have difficulties, and they're going to, maybe, maybe, maybe I was taught that they're going to just be, make, make, you know, successful, financially successful, and, and I didn't really have early on, I was young, I didn't really have an idea, a theology of of suffering. And you can actually turn on your television today and some preachers will tell you that you, if you just follow Jesus and send them money, you're just going to be happy all the time and wealthy all the time. And there's actually now, now that I'm a professor and I teach in these fields, I actually know there's a theological word that describes that theological view that being a Christian just means everything's going to go great for you. Here's what that word is, baloney. That's the theological word. I mean, I wish it were true, and there's a time when he'll dry every tear, and, and ultimately things will all be made right. But right now, we live in a broken and hurting world, right? We recognize that. And for me, I came face to face with that reality when my sister died of a rare form of cancer. And actually, just on Friday, I visited her memorial over in Winter Springs, because all of a sudden, when watching her die in her young 20s, or for that matter, seeing the world around me continued to remain broken, and I wasn't, I wasn't uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of ruled out in that, right? I wasn't exempt from the difficulties of the moment. But in the midst of all that, I could still have peace that passes all understanding. I said peace that passes all understanding twice. That's a Bible verse, actually. It's Philippians 4, 7. It says this, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Listen, you'd understand peace if things are going well, but peace is a little more hard to find when things are going badly. But it says the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. In other words, the world looks at it and says, that doesn't make sense. How can she have peace right now? How can he have peace right now? Because it transcends all understanding. Why? Because it's not a promise 
that we will not have problems. It's a promise that we can walk in peace because of the presence of a person named Jesus. Amen. That changes everything. Right? So, so the promise here points to Jesus. So it says, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not the absence of problems, but the presence of peace. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, Ephesians 2.14 literally says, he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I can't promise you a problem-free existence, but I can draw, point you to a peace that passes understanding in the midst of problems. Now, what's interesting is, is that in the story of Hamilton, it's actually not Alexander Hamilton. Actually, you'd have to look at Alexander Hamilton's life and say it was quite frantic. It was quite filled with things other than the peace of God that passes all understanding. His choices, um, his relational difficulties, his bad decisions just tell you throughout. I mean, Alexander Hamilton is is got all kinds of problems of his own making. But there's also someone in his life who was a spiritual rock in many ways. And that person was Eliza Hamilton. She was actually known, people called her the little saint. Isn't that interesting? The little saint. She was an extremely devout believer, very committed to the Lord. I, I wish more of that came through. But you can see a little bit of it. I wish more of that came through in the musical that the world saw. But enough that you people could say, I want to learn more. I want to know where her remarkable capacity for having peace in the midst of difficult circumstances, of forgiveness in the midst of betrayal, where did this come from? It came from her Christian faith. She was part of the Dutch Reformed Church, which today is called the the Reformed Church in America or the Christian Reformed Church. And, and she, she made the religious instruction a priority for her children. Every morning, Eliza would have one of their boys read a chapter from the Bible or an historical text as she made breakfast. And she knew the peace that only Jesus could give. And she wanted to make the world more like Jesus would want it to be. You know, in addition to founding the New York Orphan Asylum Society, she founded the Hamilton Free School which offered education to students whose families couldn't afford private education. You see, in the midst of her difficulty, she actually leaned on the Lord, found a peace that passes all understanding, which shouldn't surprise us because that's what Christians do. And if there's anybody throughout the musical or throughout the story who stands out as somebody who has something different in her life, it's not Alexander Hamilton's brilliance and deep problems. It's her faithfulness and a peace that passes all understanding. Now this ought not to surprise us because 2,000 years ago the disciples were behind closed doors. Jesus appears to them and says, peace be with you. Now that's written by John, who you remember is a detail-giving gospel writer. And so at the end of the gospel of John, John says, Jesus came and stood among them in hiding, in fear, and said, peace be with you. And it's John who recorded Jesus just six chapters prior in John 14, 27, listen to what John records Jesus as saying, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now because of the timing of the service, we're actually gonna sing more after. I wanna encourage you to sing and to engage in worship afterwards. The service won't go longer than normal, but there's a song we're gonna sing, the third song we're gonna sing, and it talks about he won't fail, he won't. 
And you can see, you can have that confidence and trust in him. That's how you have peace, because the Lord is still on his throne. The Lord is still in control. And you can trust your father. I have three daughters who are now 18, 21, and 24, and I love my daughters. If you want me to tell, I'll tell you all about them in the hallway if you want to hear about them. Love my daughters. When they were little, they, um, they were very adventurous. And um, one day, when they were little, we bought a, a swing set over at Home Depot, came home and assembled it. I don't know if I did it or I hired somebody, I don't remember. But I remember that it had a couple of swings. It had one of those swinging seesaws. It had a ladder that went up to a platform, and it had a slide that went off the other side of that platform. And then um, there was sort of an open section off the platform. So the platform had like, you know, the slide on one side, the ladder on the other, kind of a little, little uh, you know, wall or barrier on the other side. And then an open area. And the open area was, I think, so you could get onto the monkey bars and kind of go across there. But it also became a place for my oldest daughter to take risks. So my oldest daughter, um, she, she has a motto. It's, 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 uh, it's not fun if it's not dangerous. I mean, that's sort of her motto, right? <laughs> So she would stand on that little platform and see that she could jump off that platform into my arms. Now the platform was probably at about a little lower than my height. So it wasn't super high, you couldn't jump off that to the ground, but, but she would wait for me to come up and say, Daddy, Daddy, come here, come here, come here. And then she would launch herself from the platform into my arms where I would catch her. And I, I missed the days I could just hold her in my, you know, little, little girl, my arms, I love that little girl. And then she got older and her sisters saw that this was possible. So what happened was that little platform became a launching point for my children to jump into my arms. And their confidence in my ability to catch them was quite secure, but not always well placed. <laughs> I mean, as they got bigger, it got more difficult and they didn't tell me all the time. They just knew that their father was so powerful, was so good, was so strong, that no matter where they were, if, if they could jump from that platform to within my grasp, I would catch them and I would hold them and we would laugh together and they'd say, daddy's got me. That's the way they were. They were just confident and sure, which was true when they were little. And then they kept getting bigger and I kept getting older. And it got to the place where, like, if I walked up to the swing set, I just want to push one of the other ones on the swing, I'd have to sort of go around so they would not think, we can jump on dad and surprise him. Because the reality is they eventually outpaced my ability to catch them and to really have them. But here's the great news. Your heavenly father is never outpaced by your struggles or your problems or the difficulties of the day. And you can have this sense of confidence. Why would the disciples have peace I leave with you? My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, because it's a peace that comes from your Father, your Heavenly Father, who knows the struggles you're in, who knows the difficulty. Maybe you're in a struggle right now. There's really three kinds of people in this room. Those of you are going through a struggle right now, and the Lord's got this. Those of you just came out of a struggle, the Lord's got you. Those of you who are going to be coming into a struggle, and the Lord's got you still. See, I don't want you to miss this, right? So what we find is when we have this confidence, not based upon ourselves, but upon Jesus, that confidence causes us to say, he's got this, and then we walk with a peace that passes all understanding. And in the midst of some tumultuous and turbulent times, two centuries ago, Eliza Hamilton modeled that peace. 2,000 years ago, the disciples just heard about that peace, and today we're going to have to learn to live with that peace in tumultuous and turbulent times because it's a joy to trust Jesus because he's got this. 
He won't fail. He won't. Number one. Number one, first and foremost, we, we kind of start right at the beginning that fear is the opposite of faith. Number two, peace is the Christian response. Number three, the cross is our hope and our motivation. Remember, the moment we're in does not pause the mission we are on. If you're a note taker, jot down number three. The cross is our hope and motivation. So now, Jesus has appeared behind closed doors. He said, peace be with you. And now we go on to the next verse, John chapter 20, verse 20. It says, after he said this, He showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. There's two sentences here. But remember, John the gospel writer is a detail-giving gospel writer. So in this passage, these two sentences, he makes two points. The first, second point is clear. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. But John wants us not to miss a detail. Now, you'd be be overjoyed if you saw your friend back from the dead. If you had a friend who died on Friday and showed up at your house Sunday night, you would be, maybe not your first emotion would be joy, but a subsequent emotion would be joy. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death and his resurrection. The disciples had heard about this. Now, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, but their source of their joy was not just seeing their friend back from the dead. The sentence before tells you some of the source of their joy. Here's what it says. It says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, right? Shows them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, right? Why? Because he showed them his hands and his side. Why would he show them his hands and his side? Because he's been bodily resurrected. Don't miss this. He's been bodily resurrected and he still bears the scars of the crucifixion. John, the gospel writer, wanted us to know that they were overjoyed because the crucified Christ was back from the dead. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this because the cross is central to what we believe as Christians. We put crosses on our buildings. We put crosses inside of our worship centers. You can actually see a cross mentioned in the Hamilton musical, the sign of the cross at the door after Hamilton had come back maybe to his faith. We see over and over again the cross. Why? People maybe wear crosses around their neck or or Christians have used the cross as a symbol for centuries upon centuries. Why? Because if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're watching online, you're here with us in the room, I want you to hear this. The Christian life is ultimately about Jesus dying on the cross for our sin and in our place. And what took place? Jesus, to show his hands and his side, what took place on that Friday when Jesus died is so important that we would call the day of Jesus' death Good Friday. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to receive Jesus' death on the cross for your sin and in your place and the new life in Christ made possible by his death. So his death changes everything. His new life, his resurrection brings the victory, makes the victory clear. So he shows them his hands and his side. So don't miss this. So no matter what happens, we can trust Jesus. He won't fail. He won't. Because he's had victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that victory has enabled our forgiveness So people here in this room are not better or worse than you if you're not a follower of Jesus, but we have been forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place, and you too can receive that same reality. Forgiveness flows from the cross and is one of the central realities of the Christian faith. And forgiveness, 2,000 years ago, would propel those disciples to tell the world about Jesus. 200 years ago, the forgiveness of Christ actually 
probably transformed Eliza's heart and attitude as well. Think about how Eliza responded to Alexander's failures. If you listen to the musical, you know that Alexander does some really bad things. What's really strange about it, he does some really bad things. He has an affair, for example, um, and actually becomes what's probably the first political infidelity scandal in American history. Um, people find out, part of the story, people find out about his infidelity. Uh, they're trying to use it against him, and so Alexander decides to get ahead of the story and publishes the story of his own infidelity, crushing his wife and crushing his children. The story is actually told by, by, by author Atilar Mazeo, and let me, let me just quote what he says. During, they, they often were apart, and um, here's what he writes. During one such interlude in the summer of 1791, Hamilton began an affair with Maria Reynolds that, when publicly revealed six years later, exposed Hamilton to humiliation, augmented by both Hamilton's insistence on airing the adultery's most lurid details and a hostile press that asked, Art thou a wife? See him whom thou hast chosen for the partner of this life, lolling in the lap of a harlot. Ashamed of his conduct, Hamilton, Hamilton began to pay closer attention to his family and maybe also to his faith. Now, their marriage survived that infidelity, and I want you to know, I want you to hear that this story is not everybody's story, that this doesn't say everything about infidelity and how we respond to it as Christians. But Eliza chose to forgive, not after lots of difficulty. We actually see some of that in the musical itself. But she forgave, and she kind of pointed back to and maybe was reminded that Alexander's life did not match his early and perhaps later spiritual commitments. Hers, on the other hand, was consistent. In fact, there's a, a turning point in the whole musical that's based on the song, It's Quiet in Uptown. And my daughter, who's the, she's actually finishing her master's degree at the University of Toronto in music and opera. And she loves to tell me details about what this means musically in a show. So she tells me that this point doesn't just have a meaning in the story, though it does, it also has a meaning in the music. It's brilliantly written, she explains to me in ways that I don't understand that have to do with the music itself. But listen to the, to the lyrics. It says, there are moments that the words don't reach there's a grace too powerful to name. I just, I just wish that Manuel Miranda would say more about this, but doesn't here. But there's a grace too powerful to name. We push away what we can never understand. We push away the unimaginable. And then it says, and it's actually, if you've seen the musical, they're standing together in the musical. It says, they are standing in the garden. The music slows. They're standing in the garden. Alexander by Eliza's side. She takes his hand. It's quiet uptown. And then there's a pause. And then the music comes back with just one word sung by the whole cast. And it's forgiveness. Can you imagine? And maybe you can't. But Eliza could because she had been forgiven by the grace of God in her own life. So forgiven people are more prone to forgiveness. And we acknowledge and recognize, again, let me say again, that all the realities around infidelity are complicated and people work through those things. But, but for her, she had been changed. She had been forgiven. She chose to forgive him. And in doing so, it becomes a center point because it's shocking even to the authors and the writers of the musical. Forgiveness, can you imagine? Now, the forgiveness we received through Christ came at a great cost. 
the cost of Jesus' life for us. So again, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And so that forgiveness came at Jesus' cost. And then Christians show that shocking forgiveness to others because their lives have been changed by the forgiveness that came through Christ. Matter of fact, look at Romans chapter 14, verse 8. This is what it looks like to live as someone forgiven by the miraculous work of Christ. It says, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. We're all the Lord's. The Lord, we've belonged to the Lord. He's forgiven us and redeemed us. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Alexander Hamilton didn't live his life that way, but Eliza did. Now, what's interesting is her forgiveness extended quite far into some pretty surprising ways. Um, She demonstrated her forgiveness towards Alexander after his death. She led a campaign to ensure that, quote, her Hamilton, unquote, received the historical credit she thought he deserved. She lived another 50 years telling his story because we don't decide who lives, who dies, who tells their story. She recruited biographers to do the proper work on her husband and later that fell to a son. She hired assistants to organize his papers and And as a personal demonstration of her devotion and her forgiveness, she wore a little bag around her neck with pieces of a sonnet he had composed for her in 1780. Forgiveness changes you, and it changed the disciples. 2,000 years ago, the disciples saw the marks on Jesus' hand. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. In just a moment, he sends them on mission, and they go on mission, having been forgiven to spread that message of gospel forgiveness around the world. We go on mission because of the cross. Number four, and finally, and I'll close with this. You know what it means when a guest speaker says, I'll close with this, don't you? Absolutely nothing. Just wanted to warn you. Hope you packed a lunch, because I got more. Number four. We go on mission, right? We go because Jesus came to us. So this passage speaks to that, right? We go because Jesus came to us. Number four, if you're an outline taker, and write that down. In John chapter 20, verse 21, here's what it says. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. I told you, you said it twice. This is the second time. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is the high point of mission in the Gospel of John. Jesus says to his disciples, who he found behind closed doors in fear, told them to walk in peace, showed them his hands and his side, and then he says to them, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In the Greek, it's actually aute, it means in the same manner. So in the same manner, God the Father sent God the Son, God the Son sends his disciples. Now, you have to ask the question, is that apply to me? Not everything Jesus says to his disciples is something he wants you to do. You say, what? How would that be? Because there are times Jesus says to his disciples to do certain specific things that don't apply to you. For example, at one point, Jesus says to his disciples, go find a donkey. That is not a call of God on your life. I just wanted you to know that that's not, don't have to wander around looking for livestock after church. But when Jesus says something like a commission to his disciples, like a great commission, or this commission in John 20, 21, we pretty much uniformly believe that when he says something to his disciples 2,000 years ago, that applies to his disciples today, it applies to his disciples 200 years ago, it applies to his disciples throughout history. So let me say on behalf of Jesus, as the Father has sent Jesus, Jesus has sent you. You are sent on mission at your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, with your friends, you are sent 
on mission in the world. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's what we do. We go. Now, immediately may come to your mind and say, what does that mean? We should all go on a mission trip. Well, I'm for that. One of the things we love about Northland around the world is Northland's commitment to global missions. I've heard about Northland's commitment to global missions for years. My in-laws who attend here would tell me about Northland's commitment to global missions. I would hear about it for years. I love that. Today, at the end of the service, you're going to hear about a group going to Uganda on global. Praise God for the work that Northland does. That's how I remember Northland, that and the fact that I used to skate in a skating rink that you turned into a church. But that's another story for another day and for my teenage years. Now, here's the thing. So if those things are all true, Jesus has sent us on a mission, how might we live that out? Well, 2,000 years ago, they went around the world to tell people about Jesus. And we can still today. They also went to their neighbors. They went to their neighbors and they went to the nations. Sometimes right where they were, they said they're going to live on mission. That's what 200 years ago, Eliza Hamilton did. It's interesting because she was garnered... um, She was focused on, she was drawn to serving orphans in New York City. Now, one of the reasons is there are a lot of orphans in New York City, but it's also interesting too. Uh, Chernow, the biographer, said that um, she, she, quote, believed passionately that all children should be literate in order to study the Bible, very driven by her Christian commitment. She, she saw the grace of God and the mission of God in her own life. She, she saw the brokenness in her husband. She saw the brokenness in her husband who was driven by frantic, in frantic ways and famously unfaithful, but perhaps she also remembered that he himself was an orphan. She established an orphanage in his honor, and that continues to this day. That orphanage still is there. It's called the Graham Wyndham Charity Home today. She said, quote, I cannot spare myself or others. My maker, she wrote, has pointed out this duty to me and has given me the ability and the inclination to perform it. So earlier, when you heard, he established the first private orphanage in New York City, and she said, I see Alexander, I see your eyes in those orphans. It might be because that's part of who he was, but she went on mission because that's part of who Jesus made her to be. She responded to the goodness and grace of God, and as the Father sent me, Jesus said, I am sending you. She heard that call and responded. She went to the, to the crisis, to the need. She went to the place of brokenness, and so can we 200 years later from then and 2,000 years after Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so, I'm sending you. When we moved, to, um, we moved here to Orlando, I came from New York City. I'm from New York City, so you got a problem with that? Forget about it. Josh is not from New York City. I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, I don't know if you could tell from the accent. Um, so we came down here kind of uh, starting over. My dad lost his job or kind of broke. We moved into a house on Howell Branch Road. Many of you have driven down Howell Branch Road. And you're like, when you say a house on Howell Branch Road, you mean one of the developments on Howell Branch Road. I do not. I mean an actual house in an orange grove that's no longer there. I think it's a, some sort of school there now. They tore it down years ago. We lived in a house on blocks without air conditioning in the middle of an orange grove in Howell Branch Road. And uh, that's where we lived. And, and uh, we're just starting over. And my grandfather had come down. He retired from the New York City Fire Department. So my grandfather moved down to Florida first. We came after him. And we were just, you know, a very difficult time. We got, we got some government assistance. We're here. We had to start over. And, but I remember every Saturday, I'd ride my bicycle over to my grandfather's house in the Winter Park Pines. And my grandfather would 
pay me to mow his lawn. And I think he overpaid me because he knew we were in difficult straits. And, and I would go there. And then afterwards, I didn't really go for that. I, I went there because every Saturday afterwards, two things happened. My grandmother made eggs for breakfast. We couldn't afford eggs at my house. It was kind of like two months ago in America when nobody could afford eggs. <laughs> back to normal now, but for us, we didn't have any, that was it. And then my grandfather would sit me down and tell me stories about the fire department. And I loved his stories about the fire department. I remember he was my hero, still is. My grandfather was a fire battalion chief, my uncle, a New York City cop. I actually have their badges, and I'll show you those badges right here. I'm so thankful for the first responders who serve here as well. And yeah, for sure. <laughs> thankful for the service of, of uh, my grandfather and my, and my uncle. Um, my dad was a construction worker starting over, so we got all this. So we got, so I'd go there and I'd hear these stories from my grandfather, and they always had some variation of when there's a fire, we're the ones running towards the fire when everyone else is running away. When there's a bomb threat, we're the ones running towards the bomb when everyone else is running away. It was a recurring theme. My grandfather kept explaining to me and really instilled in me this idea that in the midst of the crisis, some people run towards the crisis, some people run away. And I don't know about you, but I just find that beautifully applies to the Christian mission in a convulsed, convulsing, turbulent, and tumultuous time. In the midst of the difficulty of this day, what if we were the people who ran towards the crisis to show and share the love of Jesus? If we spoke up with winsome convictions, if we were driven by showing and sharing the love of Jesus, the end result would be we'd actually engage this cultural moment well. Some would serve the hurting. Some would share the gospel. Some would speak up on issues that are important that we speak carefully, winsomely, and with deep conviction. And the world would be an impacted place because we rush towards the crisis. Eliza joined Jesus on mission in her day 200 years ago with an orphanage in New York City. And maybe there's, I mean, there's still places around the world that we need to engage and help support orphanages. And there's places here where we can engage in foster care. And there's places here where we can engage in evangelism. Your church is involved. You individually can be involved in joining Jesus on mission in the world. So... We went back 2,000 years ago. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. We looked 200 years ago at a historic example of what that looked like in the, lives of one per in the life of one person. And how can you ultimately join Jesus on mission where you are? I want you to think about that right now in your workplace, your home, your neighborhood, among your friends, your family, your coworkers. You can join Jesus on mission among your neighbors, and to the nations in partnership with your church and other ministries. So I want to invite you to respond. We actually find a time in the Old Testament when a prophet was actually sent by God. And here's how he responded in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. said, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, this is Isaiah, and I said, here am I, send me. So when Isaiah heard the Lord sending him, he said, here am I, send me five words. You see them on the screen? Let's say them out loud together. Ready? Here am I, send me. Those five words are a proper response. So now Jesus sends all of his disciples on mission. He says to you in the pages of scripture, and I repeat to you, speaking the words of Jesus, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. The disciples went and showed and shared the love of Jesus. Historical figures went and showed and shared the love of Jesus. And today, God's people at Northland Church, here in person and online, can say, here am I, send me. I wonder if you just take a moment and just pray with me. And when we pray, I want you to actually 
say those words with me. We're going to say those five words in this prayer out loud together if it's a prayer of your heart. We're going to say, here am I, send me. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, we come before you this day just acknowledging in thankfulness that you redeemed us. Your work on the cross for our sin and in our place changed us. Father, we acknowledge that in a world full of tumult and turbulence, too many people respond in fear, backing away, even as the disciples did 2,000 years ago. In frantic and tumultuous times, people often respond poorly, but Lord, you have given us a peace that passes all understanding. So Lord, we want to hear your words again. Just with your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, hear the words of Jesus. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Your name if you're a follower of Jesus. I want you to think about it in your mind's eye, your workplace, your friends, your neighborhood, your online community, whatever it may be. And if it's the prayer of your heart, I want you to pray with me those five words from Isaiah. They're here am I, send me. Very simple but a prayer of commitment. You'll go to your neighbors and your nation, wherever the Lord calls you to go, you'll join Jesus on mission in that place. Just in the quietness of this moment, just softly but out loud, if that's a prayer of your heart, would you pray what Isaiah prayed with me? Let's say it out loud together. Here am I, send me. That's our prayer, Lord Jesus. Send us to the broken places to show and share the love of Jesus. 2,000 years ago, we hear your words. We see how the disciples responded through history. We see how godly women and men have responded. Lord, in this moment, we cry out, here am I, send me. In Jesus' name, amen.